No, they're just they're just not here. They're visiting somewhere else. So, good morning. I'm glad you guys are here. And uh, we're going to get into First Corinthians seven, and we're going to finish up the chapter. Um, and the title of the the lesson this morning is to marry or not to marry. And um, we're going to look at verses 36 through the end of the chapter and. I don't have a lot of cross-references today um, as far as other verses to go to, um, but I did spend a lot of time researching um, Jewish uh, marriage traditions and customs uh, because it really helps us to understand um, what he's talking about in these particular verses. And uh, I don't know, did anybody remember last last Sunday as we left, I asked if if you have time this week to look over these verses, did anybody get a chance to do that this week? <laughs> no? <laughs> That's okay, because I just remembered that I asked that last week myself. <laughs> I did look over them, but I just remembered saying that last Sunday. So uh, I should have sent a reminder out to have you guys look at it. Uh, but anyway, let's go ahead and we'll open in prayer, and then we'll, we'll take a look, look at these verses here. Lord Jesus, I thank you for today. Um, Lord, I just praise you for your blessings today. I praise you that through the chaos of things that happen around us, um, Lord, that we can already know your plans. You have plans for today. And Lord, that nothing takes you by surprise. And Father, I just pray that we're obedient in whatever things you allow to come our way today. And that we make our decisions today based on what you want. Um, rather than what we desire. And I just thank you for it. I thank you for your patience with us, and I thank you for um, loving us the way that you do and, and giving the example of laying down your life for us. And I just praise you, and I, I, I rejoice today. In Jesus' name, amen. So if we start reading in verse um, 36, he says, If anybody, or anyone, excuse me, is worried that he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought not to marry or ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Now if we go back to just a few verses, chapter 7, verse 27, when he starts this particular uh, part of his instruction, he says now about virgins, ver starting in verse 25, now about virgins I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it's good for a man to remain as he is. Focusing on verse 27 here, he says, Are you pledged to a woman? Do, you, do not seek to be released. 
And then he asks the question, are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. And so the interpretation of uh, verses 36, 37, and 38 uh, in the translation of this is, is difficult as the alternative or the alternate marginal translation indicates. Uh, and what's meant by that is you might have in your Bible, there might be an alternative chapter, verse 36 and 37, 38. Does anybody have that in their Bibles? Um, in the margin of my Bible, those three verses are, it has an alternate, alternate uh, translation, and it reads like this. I'll read it. Uh, it's kind of small print, so hold on just a second. I've got to get it situated here. It says, if anyone thinks he is not treating his daughter properly, and if she is getting along in years, and he feels that she ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He's not sinning. He should let her get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind to keep the virgin unmarried, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who gives his virgin in marriage does right, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. So the reason why this is confusing is because the later translations are give it from the perspective of the bridegroom, and the earlier translations give it from the perspective of the father who is giving his daughter in marriage. And why this is written this way is because the words um, for marriage there's there's two greek words that are very similar one means to give in marriage and the other one means simply to marry and they're both used in these three verses as synonymous so it's difficult to judge whether or not he's talking about the father or he's talking about the bridegroom so um, i started doing some research on jewish culture and and marriage and things like that and I came up, I found an article that I don't like to normally do this, but I'd like to read it to you because it, it pretty clearly describes and helps us understand how both of those could be possibly true in this particular case. And so um, this is ancient Jewish marriage, uh, MJL. Uh, is the name of the website. I'm not sure what that stands for. I don't, I don't remember. But anyway, it's a, uh, a Jewish-driven or Jewish background um, uh, article here. And it says, In biblical times, people were married in early youth, and marriages were usually contracted within the narrow circle of the clan and the family. And it was undesirable to marry a woman from a foreign clan, lest she introduce foreign beliefs and practices. And we know that that's... Um, you know, God gives that commands in a couple places in the Old Testament uh, for Israel to remain with Israelites. Um, anyway, it goes on to say, as a rule, the fathers arranged the match. The girl was consulted, but the calling of the damsel and inquiring at her mouth after a conclusion of all negotiations was merely a formality. So in those days, a father was more concerned about the marriage of his sons than about the marriage of his daughters. No expense was involved in marrying off a daughter. The father received a drawery for his daughter, whereas he had to give a drawery to the prospective father-in-law of his son uh, when marrying him off. 
So the price was paid by the father. Uh, excuse me, the price paid by the father of the groom to the father of the bride was called a mohar. To be included in the text, um, this was the, also included with the traditional ketubah, or Jewish wedding contract. In Genesis, um, we see uh, Shechem and Dina's, and Dina's father and brothers. He says, let me find favor in your eyes. And what you say, you shall give me, I will give. Ask me never so much mohar and matin, and I will give according as you shall say unto me, but give me the damsel to wife. So, that, of course, that's the old King James Version that he's referring to. And, and so what they're doing is they're negotiating a contract for Dina um, to be married. Um, matin was the Hebrew word for the gifts given by the groom to the bride in addition to the mohar. The mohar was not always paid in cash. Sometimes it was paid in kind or in service. The book of Genesis relates the story of the servant Abraham, who after his request for Rebekah to marry Isaac was granted, brought forth jewels of silver and jewels of gold, arraignment, and gave them to Rebekah, and he gave also to her, uh, her brother and to her mother precious things. The servant thus gave Mathen to Rebekah, and Mohar to her brother and mother. The Bible does not specify what was to be done with the Mohar in case of marriage in the case that the marriage agreement was broken by either of the two parties. So Mohar was originally the purchase price of the bride, and it's therefore understandable why it was paid by the father of the groom to the father of the bride. In ancient days, marriage was not an agreement between two individuals, but between two families. The newly married man usually did not uh, found a new home for himself, but occupied a nook in his father's house. The family of the groom gained, the fam gained and the family of the bride lost a valuable member who helped with all the household tasks. And it was reasonable, therefore, that the father of the groom should pay the father of the bride the equivalent of her value as a useful member of the family. And so uh, it goes on to say, um, until late in the Middle Ages, marriage consisted of two ceremonies that were marked by celebrations at two separate times with an interval in between. First came the betrothal and then later the wedding. At the betrothal, the woman was legally married and although she remained in her father's house, she could not belong to another man unless she was divorced from her betrothed and the wedding meant only that the betrothed woman, accompanied by a colorful procession, was brought from her father's house to the house of her groom, and the legal tie with him was consummated. And so it goes on to describe how that at the betrothal, that was the prominent or the most important part of the, of the marriage or of the wedding, uh, because that was the contract that said, okay, now you belong to this man and it, you have a time between the, the betrothal and the wedding. Um, and it goes back to, if we go back to Deuteronomy 24, just for a moment, there is a description that's given uh, or a, a, a judgment that's given in the case of if a wife is betrothed to a husband and she is intimate with another man, there are instructions that are given. 
I wrote the wrong verse down. Um, yeah. I'm sorry. I wrote the wrong verse down. But anyway, in the, in the Jewish law, in Deuteronomy, I can't remember exactly where it was at, but there's, there's a, a law that's written that if a woman is betrothed to a man to be married and she is intimate with another man during that time for any reason whatsoever, um, that she and the man that she is with are to be executed by stoning. And so it brings to light when we fast forward to uh, Mary and Joseph and Mary becomes pregnant and conceives Jesus our Lord that Joseph wants to divorce her quietly because once they're betrothed the only way that that contract can be broken is through divorce and so there has already been a, mat a material exchange of goods there's already been um, uh, the whole family has been involved um, in this this contract has been brought brought up and drawn up uh, and so there's a there's a massive loss not just to the two that are getting married but also to the families <coughs> that everybody has to agree on so as we look at that um, Joseph wants to divorce Mary quietly because if he makes it public then that means that Mary has to come forward with whoever it was that she was intimate with and they both are required to be stoned by Jewish law. And so Joseph is, is going, what do I do? He knows he's in a pickle. He knows he's in a difficult situation if, if Mary is exposed to be with child while he is betrothed, the, the contract has been made, the agreement has been made, but they've not been able to uh, complete the transaction, so to speak, to where he is is free to consummate the marriage with her so as as you look at that all of a sudden the lights are clicking on for me as i'm studying the you know the jewish uh, culture and how the the marriage takes place but if we go back to genesis 29 uh, i started searching for how long is that time frame and i never did find an exact number that was set by god that it was a a certain amount of time but i did find where that time frame was negotiated between uh, the bridegroom and between the two families. And so um, Genesis chapter 29, this is when Jacob goes to uh, Pat and Aram to, to seek a wife, and he meets Rebekah at the well, and he's just head over heels for her at that time, and he's doing what God has called him to do. So if we jump down to... Uh, starting in verse 14, it says, Laban said to him, Now you are my own flesh and blood. And after Jacob stayed with, stayed with him for a while, uh, for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you are a relative of mine, should you, not, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Le Leah had weak eyes. But Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. A lot of people will read this verse, and, and when they read that Leah had weak eyes, it's, it's easy to come to the conclusion that she was less attractive than, than Rachel. 
Um, but the Hebrew for that doesn't mean that in, in, by any means. Um, it means that she's more delicate than, than Rachel was. Okay? And in Western culture today, this is just my personal opinion, that is probably more attractive to most men today than a woman who is, you know, a little sturdier. Uh, <laughs> but in Jewish culture... They're not just looking at physical features, but they're looking, I mean, I'm, Jacob is watching as Leah, or um, excuse me, as Rachel is coming as a shepherd to the well to, to feed her or to give her father's flock a drink. Um, and, and I perceive that they were both equally attractive, but Rachel was maybe a little more, uh, a little more athletic build, I guess you would say. Uh, and so he was more attracted to Rachel, and that's the one that he fell in love with. So um, Rachel has a lovely figure. She was beautiful. She's described this way in verse 18. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you for seven years in return for your, for your younger daughter, Rachel. So he signs, he, they come to an agreement. They, the families are in agreement on what the what the uh, arrangement is going to be. He works for seven years, and then after seven years, he gets Rachel. So Laban says, it's better that I give you to her than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years together, or, or to get Rachel. But they seemed like only a few days to him because his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is complete, and I want to make love to her. So Laban brought all together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when the evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. <coughs> and Laban gave his servant uh, Zilpha to his daughter as, an, as her attendant. And when morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, What is this that you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? And so at this point, there are a lot of uh, scholars that are convinced that what has happened here, the deception that's taken place, was God's discipline on Jacob for deceiving his father and giving him Jake, or Esau's birthright. Um, I'm not 100% sure that that's the case. I don't know. Um, it sounds logical. Uh, that that could be the case. Um, but at the same time, we're looking at the time frame of seven years from the time that uh, Rachel is, is committed to um, and married to Jacob before Jacob is able to uh, consummate the marriage because that's the agreement that they had. So anyway, Laban replies... It's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. That is a true statement. But what Laban did is he goes, I'm going to get as much out of this guy as I possibly can. So at the end of seven years, well, on a technicality, you have to marry Leah first because she's the oldest. And it was, it was actually, um, it was almost considered a curse if a woman, an older daughter, or excuse me, if a younger daughter got married before an older daughter, it was considered a curse on the family uh, when that happened. So anyway, 
Um, the rest of the story, uh, Jacob stays. He works another seven years. He, get, he marries Rachel as well. There's a new contract. And so now Jacob has two wives. He works for 14 years to be able to be with 100% with the one that he fell in love with at the well. Um, part of the agreement was is that when the daughters were given in marriage, they were all usually often given servants. They were given land. They were given, um, the daughters were given, uh, you know, a lot of times they were flocks and things like that that were given with them. So that's part of the reason why um, that the, the bridegroom's family felt like they were getting the better end of the deal and they would give a very large, generous gift for a woman, uh, for their son to be married to, so that these things could be fulfilled. So back into 1 Corinthians and how this applies, is I'm certain that when Paul is addressing the church in Corinth, there's a very strong likelihood and possibility that there were families that were in the middle of the contract of their sons and daughters getting married. And so what he's describing here is, okay, now, if the two families come together and there's 100% unity that the contract has already been signed, but they haven't been officially married and there's not been consummation of the marriage, and everyone is in agreement that they have received the, the gift of celibacy, they should continue and be married and be celibate and further the gospel. So that's why he says don't seek to get out of this relationship in the earlier verses because... Uh, in verse 27, are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. He's saying don't divorce her even though the marriage is not finished. Don't seek to get out of the marriage. Go ahead and continue to go through. And if you can't control your urges with each other, get married, consummate the marriage, live for Christ. And so that's part of the reason why this particular passage is so confusing to me because in our culture today, um, we get, it's completely different than that. We get engaged, we get married, and we live together, and, and things transition much more differently. Um, women are given more, um, more in interest and opportunity to voice their opinions uh, and their desires in that relationship and how they, you know, marriage takes place and that kind of thing. So anyway, he continues on. In verse 38, So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. And so when we look back at um, Romans 7, <coughs> we look at Romans ver chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, he makes this statement as well in this passage. We'll just start in verse 1 and read 1, 2, and 3. He says, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, <clears throat> a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is still alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then... 
If she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So there's, <coughs> there's very uh, strict laws against uh, divorce. There's very strict laws against um, immorality uh, between a man and a woman. And so he's, he's kind of reaffirming this in 1 Corinthians 7, in 39 and 40. Um, he says, in my judgment, in verse 40, she's happier if she stays as she is, and I think that I too have this Spirit of God. So he's, he's reaffirming also his, apostle, his apostleship when he says, I think that I too have the Spirit of God. He's, he's giving the... Um, the affirmation that he is speaking and that he's writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit, even though there wasn't a direct conversation between Jesus and Paul while he was um, with him in the wilderness. So, and also when we read through the Gospels, you know, we see the instruction that Jesus gives, but the instruction that Christ gives is also under the law uh, at the same time. So under the law, like, like I said before, uh, a woman who did not get married, who was getting older in years uh, and was not married to someone, um, that was often considered a curse on the family uh, by God to that family because there was no husband for the wife, or for the, for the daughter, excuse me. So if we continue into chapter 8, um, I'm just going to read through uh, the chapter and kind of hit some of the highlights and we'll get a little deeper into it next week. Um, but he starts out by saying now about food sacrifice to idols. Again, he, he begins this particular chapter speaking this way because it was a question that had come up uh, by the people who had contacted Paul when there was a reference to the, the arguments that were going on in the Corinthian church. So he says, we know that we all possess knowledge. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Uh, giving affirmation that Jesus is the creator as well. So in verse 7 he says, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial foods, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, Eating in, idols, in an idol's temple, won't that person be em emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this 
weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak consciences, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. So what he's, what he's asking here is, is once we know and understand that something that we may or may not do in our life is going to cause somebody else to question um, God's sovereignty is, or is going to question, um, you know, because they have learned uh, a certain way about things until they are trained and until they are educated and understand more about the gospel, we're to make sure that we try not to do anything that's going to cause them to stumble or to question uh, grace and question salvation to the point where uh, it's going to cause them to fall. Yeah, that's a good question because Paul is, he is serving as a church planter and an evangelist and he's writing to a body of believers. So the question you ask is, is very legitimate um, where, you know, if you know something that you do is going to cause me to stumble, the body of believers should be close enough and we should be growing together enough that within a relatively short period of time, Somebody approaches me and says, hey, can we study the scripture together and find out what the truth is about the difference between, you know, our belief systems? And so hopefully within a relatively short period of time, we would all gather around and I would know and understand, oh, wow, you know, I, I can't eat pork. I can't eat this or I can eat that because, you know, we read in Acts where, you know, about the... Uh, God sending the sheet down with all of the different animals to Peter and says, hey, kill and eat whatever you want. Whatever you accept with Thanksgiving, you can eat. Um, if I go to somebody's house and there's food put on the table and I don't know that it was sacrificed to an idol, I'm not guilty of eating that because I was unaware. Um, but he describes also, you know, if I sit down to eat at the table and I know that that was given, get up and tell that person, you know, this was sacrificed to an idol we shouldn't. You know, so he's giving instructions to, to both sides of that. And, uh, um, but within the body of believers, you know, I, and this is, a, I had somebody explain this to me uh, several years ago, um, back in my rebel days, I, I had an earring. You know, I know it's hard to picture because I don't have two earlobes. I mean, one of my earlobes is like gone, you know. But, uh, <laughs> but I had an earring in and somebody came to me in the church and said, you know, that's really uh, kind of offensive to the gospel. And I was like, what do you mean it's offensive to the gospel? You know, we're given a free will and, and people were tattooed and body pierced all through the Old Testament. And, and that was my ignorance to the scripture. But my response was more like, well, you know what, you have your convictions about this and I have mine and I'm not, I'm not convinced that 
God sees me as less of a follower because I have an earring. Well, what this is saying and what Paul is saying, if me having an earring in causes somebody in the body of believers to stumble and say, you know what, I don't know if I should be a part of this body because I see guilty by association or, you know, they have stereotypes already in the culture and that's going to cause somebody to stumble, I should take that earring out. And eventually, that's the conviction that I had, you know, was it was, okay, you know, people are, people are going to start to see that. It doesn't benefit the gospel any for me to have an earring on, you know, just because so I can go into a certain area of a city and, and start a conversation with somebody because of my appearance. You know, when Paul never did give in to any of that, but what he did do is he entered into... Uh, you know, he would enter into a city and he would look around and he would kind of study the culture and the things that were going on in that city. And then he would use what was already there to initiate a conversation about the gospel and bring Jesus Christ into it. So, and I think that's the example that we should follow. And that doesn't mean, you know, there's, I've heard pastors say things like, um, you know, this person is going to reach people that this person is not. Um, and that may be true, and I don't, I don't discredit that at all, and, and I'm certain that it's true because God prepares people for different jobs and prepares places for them to be and things like that, but it doesn't mean that because this guy over here is a biker and this guy over here goes to work in an office that they can't witness one to the other and the gospel be shared and, and conversion happen, you know, so... Um, we, Paul never separates people by demographic or by background or ethnicity or anything like that. He always gives the gospel to the ones that the Holy Spirit is dealing with. Um, and, uh, and he's following Jesus' example as well. So, um, just real quickly in verse 19 of, uh, no, I'm sorry. I jumped to the wrong spot. In verse 9, he says, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights do not become a stumbling block to the weak. This is what we're talking about. Uh, if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, eating as an idol, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? And I, when I read that, I think of... Um, there's a lot of people over the years, and I've, I've done this myself. Um, uh, years ago, I was working at uh, a shop in Yorkville, and on Fridays, it was their tradition. Every Friday, uh, the owner of the shop, they had a repair shop and they had a body shop as well. Rick, Rick Lucas Auto Body, have you ever heard it? No? Okay. Um, the, the owner of the shop would take everybody uptown to a bar for tacos on Friday because they had good tacos for lunch and so it was nothing for me to get there oh yeah going to have tacos you know and it wasn't till later that the Lord started showing me you know your car shouldn't be parked outside of a bar and I'm like but I'm not going in to drink you know and I'm thinking yeah right right and so what he's referring to is somebody with weaker faith might look at that and go well you know maybe it's maybe it's okay to be in a bar and to be drink 
Well, the conviction was, for me, is in that sense, you know, there are times when I, I mean, uh, Izzy's here in town, you know, when they, they had the best hamburgers, you know. So there were times that, man, I really, want a, I really want a burger from Izzy's. So, you know what, I call them up and say, I'm coming to pick it up. And I would go and I would park, you know, not right in front of the building, and I would walk in, I'd get my burger, and I'd leave. And, and you know, it's that kind of thing where you come walking out of there and you see somebody, and you, if you, somebody sees you, you just, you just hope that, you know, they're not looking at it, thinking that you went in, you sat down, you had a beer or whatever while you were waiting. <laughs> yeah. But what Paul is saying is, is he's saying, if I know that that's going to cause somebody to really think twice and really cause somebody to stumble, I don't need that. And so I have to evaluate, is my desire for a really good burger uh, more important than the possibility that somebody, and, I, and I, don't, I don't tell you that to say you should live your life in fear of who's going to be seeing you and who's going to be watching you and that kind of thing all the time. But if you're made aware of it, then we have that he's saying that he, Paul, his conviction is that he has a responsibility to change that and to um, make sure that he's expressing Christ's love and a clear message of the gospel to that person. So when we do have a knowledge of that, I, I, I listened to one of John MacArthur's messages this week, and uh, he was describing how when conversion takes place, and he was reading a passage in Romans that talks about you know, how we were in the past, and, he's in, and he gives the description and how we are once we've been changed. And he says, you know, uh, when that happens, he said that should be massive. That should be catastrophic to a person's personality to the point where um, when that happens, when that transition happens from living in darkness to living in light, that it is undeniable to anybody that knows that person. And I think to myself, you know, all of the years of my life that I lived, and I wanted to say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't want to look like one when I'm in front of these friends over here. You know, and yeah, I wanna, I'm a Christian, and I want to make sure that I look like one in front of these friends over here. You know, and it's a very confusing and blurry picture then. And Jesus gives a description in 1 John 4. He says, if you're not obeying my commands, and you're not doing it consistently all the time, and you're not repenting of things that you did all the time and putting guardrails in place, he says, you're not mine. And so that was, that was pretty... Uh, a pretty hard blow to to my demeanor to my personality um, as I studied those and and got older in years and realized you know well there's a good possibility maybe I'm not his and so and brought about a uh, a real change so we're done actually a little early today I'm gonna I'm gonna stop right there because I want to get into chapter eight a little deeper uh, in my study before I really uh, make any more comments on it but uh, it's been an interesting journey this week um, for this particular passage, understanding the Jewish traditions of marriage, and it's really helped me to understand and see um, how things transpired with Mary and Joseph and helped me understand that because, you know, I, I just couldn't get how, okay, Mary is espoused or betrothed to Joseph. They can't be intimate with each other. Um, but divorce at this point is a, such a catastrophic thing, and that really helped me to understand that uh, because there was so much on the line 
um, in, in, the, in the Jewish customs, the Jewish law, and how they were to be, um, if you got divorced at that point because of immorality, the, the penalty was execution, you know. And so if you think about that today, um, if that were a law in today, today's culture, where would most of us be? <laughs> yeah. Uh, they w- we would, and most of us would be executed. So um, thank you for your attention this morning, and, uh, and God bless you guys.